Hey there. On the afternoon of Sunday, August 7th, Stacey Dusitsina was sitting alone in her office at Vanderbilt University, where she's a professor of health policy, watching C-SPAN and crying. The question is on passage of H.R. 5376 as amended. I ask for the yeas and nays. Is there a sufficient second? There appears to be. The clerk will call the roll. The U.S. Senate was voting on the Inflation Reduction Act. Mrs. Blackburn, Mr. Blumenthal, Mr. Which, among other things, lots of other things, is going to make it so people on Medicare will pay less for really expensive drugs. The yeas are 50, the nays are 50. The Senate being equally divided, the vice president votes in the affirmative, and the bill, as amended, is passed. There are a bunch of drug provisions in this new law. And the one that's gotten the most attention is probably one that gives Medicare the right to negotiate the price it pays for certain expensive drugs. And that doesn't kick in for a few years. But maybe a bigger deal and sooner, by 2025, nobody on Medicare will have to pay more than $2,000 a year for prescription drugs, which is a huge deal. It is the main reason that Stacey DeSitzina was crying as she watched the Senate take that vote. Because lots of people pay more than that now. More than a million people every year, and some pay a lot more. Stacy's research shows that the top 10 cancer pills cost people on Medicare more than 10,000 bucks a year each. That's 170,000 people paying that much, more than $10,000 a year each, every year. And that's just the top 10 cancer pills. Those are not the only really expensive drugs. I think it just basically created a situation where I was thinking a lot all the time about like, how, how do we help make this better? And it's like, ugh. <laughs> so, you know, it creates a little bit of an obsession. Stacy and her obsession have helped change that situation, change the way Medicare's prescription drug benefit called Part D is going to work. And it's an example of how things really, really messed up things can sometimes get better. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter and I like a challenge. So our job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you something entertaining, empowering, and useful. Stacey DeSitzina was not born obsessing about Medicare policy. She grew up in a tiny town in North Carolina. Her dad was a welder. Her mom homeschooled Stacey and her siblings. And after college, she says she kind of drifted into working in the pharmaceutical industry. And after a few years, she went for a PhD in pharmaceutical science. I was interested in pharmacoepidemiology. Quite a mouthful, but... Like, how do large populations use medicine and how does that change with new information? How much drugs cost, whether people could afford them, that did not land on her research agenda until she was already in her first job as a professor. And she read a newspaper story. There was an um, article that had come out talking about how people couldn't afford this really expensive cancer drug, that its price was going up and patients couldn't afford it. And she was like, huh, I mean, that makes sense, but there's no data to support it. Somebody like, oh, I don't know, a population health scientist that is like her should look into this. My colleagues and I produced the paper really fast because we're like, oh, we have access to data to answer this question. And the findings were pretty dramatic. We found that people who had higher costs 
were 70% more likely to discontinue taking these literally life-saving drugs. She was looking at drugs that fight a rare cancer called chronic myeloid leukemia. The first one called Gleevec came out in 2001. Similar drugs followed and they work. Stacy says the side effects aren't even that bad. She calls them basically the best cancer drugs that have ever been developed. They practically function as a cure. So like the fact that so many people were discontinuing within six months. And you're supposed to take this for more than six months. Oh my goodness. You're supposed to take this for the rest of your life. And the consequence of not taking it is the rest of your life is probably going to be a lot shorter. She says without drugs like these, you're looking at maybe five years to live with this cancer. With them, you're looking at a normal lifespan. So seeing people not take it because it costs more? That's a nightmare. And the out-of-pocket costs that we were looking at, some of them were not even that high. Some of the people in the high-cost group in her study were paying just $75 a month or, you know, not paying it and not getting life-saving medicine. That paper got some big attention, like at a big national meeting for cancer specialists, the president of the group used it as a call to action. I wasn't in attendance, but a friend was, and she's like, there was a standing ovation. It was crazy. Stacy has been looking ever since at how out-of-pocket costs affect people's access to drugs. She's focused a lot on Medicare's drug benefit, especially with expensive drugs like cancer drugs. And it was so obvious that this is not a benefit that is designed for people who need high-priced drugs. But given the prevalence of cancers among older adults, it's like many people, when they eventually do develop cancer, are on Medicare. And so the idea that you could have such poor coverage was just kind of staggering. Yeah. For instance, drug coverage on Medicare Part D is actually private insurance. You shop for it, pick the best deal for you. Except I think in 2014, we found that like, oh, turns out there are no good Part D plans for cancer drugs. They are all uniformly not generous. Like you can't shop your way into a plan that covers these better. So that's that's not great. Some of her research gets way into the weeds. Other than the result, people end up paying too much for their medicine. Some of it is way past what I can follow at first. And Stacey says, yeah, that's because this stuff is super complicated. I have spent probably the better part of a decade, like, thinking about this hard and figuring out, like, over time things that were like, oh, I didn't know it worked that way. Like, does anybody else actually know it works that way? No? Well, time to put out another paper. Pretty much always the question is, how does Medicare work if you're actually trying to use it for life-saving drugs? This last spring, Stacy and her colleagues published the results of a really big study. They pulled more than 17,000 prescription records from 11 big hospital systems, all for people on Medicare, all for high-priced drugs for things like cancer, and looked at whether people ever actually filled those prescriptions. People on Medicare with super low incomes get subsidies, and they generally filled those prescriptions. But we found that, like... 30% of people without subsidies were not filling the cancer drugs that were prescribed to them by their doctors. That is, that's a ton. Yeah, for cancer. And there's reason to think that the samples Stacy and her colleagues looked at are folks who would have less of a problem than people being treated in other places. We're focused on academic medical centers that have very, like, large cancer programs. They are the specialists in their areas. 
They have financial counselors and support teams and on-site pharmacies. They have like every tool in the toolkit to help people to take their drugs or get access to drugs. And still we find this massive percentage of people who are not filling them. I mean, it is shocking. And also, you know, not that surprising. You know, like if you talk to a regular person and you said, okay, well, these drugs are going to cost you $1,000 out of pocket or two or $3,000 just for your first month. Like, what do you think would happen? It's like, well, most normal people would be like, uh, yeah, well, how am I going to fill that? And so I think that kind of the average person could have told you what I would find in my study before I did my study. That said, it is hard to convince the, I guess we'll call them the not average people who are making decisions about policies, how broad of a problem this is. It's like that very first study she did, the one where she read a newspaper story and thought, well, geez, I know how to get the data that could show how big a problem this is. In the last couple of years, this issue Stacy studies has also gotten very personal. Her mom has been fighting breast cancer. My siblings and I are in a very good position. We have really great jobs and we could help to cover the cost. But you know your parents are just not going to be pro that strategy. And the complexity of Medicare policy came right into the family's story. The most common kinds of breast cancer are treated with an oral medication, pills. That's Medicare Part D, prescription drugs. And the price tag is like $15,000 a year out of pocket. But Stacy's mom had a different type of breast cancer, treated with infused drugs in a doctor's office, covered by the medical care part of Medicare. It really had me thinking, as someone who had already been mad about Medicare Part D for a long time, to see how much relief I felt as a family member knowing it was covered like she could pursue treatment and it would be covered and you wouldn't have that additional burden of like having to deal with these huge costs every single month on top of the burden of undergoing treatment for cancer, which is horrible in and of itself. Stacy published an essay in the New England Journal of Medicine that she says was a little more personal, although it didn't mention her mom at all. It was called The High Cost of Cancer Drugs Under Medicare Part D just the facts. But those facts are wrenching. It's not even having breast cancer. It's the subtype of cancer that you have that can dictate whether or not you can afford to be treated. And that's not where we want to be. That's the whole point of having health insurance is to actually have that financial protection when you need it. Since Stacy's been studying this, making these arguments, Congress has come close more than once to fixing these problems. She remembers a conversation with a friend a few years ago. And we were commiserating about like how it felt really close that time or it might happen. And someone pointed out like, oh, in the 80s, they literally were writing the exact same things, like the same criticisms and stuff like that. And it was just kind of, um, I don't know, it felt very depressing that like basically my entire lifetime and we're still having the exact same argument without much of a change. At least until now. But wait, the exact same debates were happening in the 1980s? Turns out that is absolutely right. And I got to talk with the eyewitness to end all eyewitnesses to that. Somebody who has been watching this exact argument in Congress for the entire time. That's right after this. 
This episode of An Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. KHN is not affiliated with the giant healthcare outfit Kaiser Permanente. We'll have more information about KHN at the end of this episode. And speaking of our pals at KHN, one of them is the premier eyewitness to decades of congressional debates about Medicare drug coverage. I am Julie Rovner. I'm chief Washington correspondent at Kaiser Health News and host of KHN's What the Health podcast. I've been on this beat since 1986. That is longer than anybody else. And she has been covering Medicare this entire time. Basically, if you were a health policy reporter in the 1980s and 1990s, Medicare was your beat. I know a lot about Medicare. (laughs) I learned it all the hard way. And some of it she learned from watching what happened with the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act of 1988. It was quite was sort of my first big bill that I covered. And then there was this gigantic backlash and it ended up getting repealed. It's still the only major bill that I ever saw get repealed. So it passed and was signed into law. And then the next year, a majority of Congress voted to repeal it. And that was signed. Yes, that's correct. Crap. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a really big deal at the time. Here's how all that started and how it went down. Medicare originally didn't have what's called an out-of-pocket max. That's a limit on what you might spend on your own health care in a given year. For anything, not just drugs. And actually, it still doesn't. People get private insurance to cover that. And in the 1980s, conservative icon Ronald Reagan said, hey, we got to change that. Medicare should do more for people. And a Democratic Congress said... Well, you betcha. And actually, let's go farther. Let's add a prescription drug benefit. Which they'd been trying to do for some time because Medicare originally didn't have prescription drug coverage because in 1965, there weren't that many prescription drugs. They weren't that expensive. Not a big deal. You were like, yeah, this doesn't cover your penicillin. I'm like, that's all right. It's generic. I'm fine. Exactly. Three bucks. I mean, you're probably going to be able to pay it. When did we start having drugs that like people were like, you know, that's kind of a lot. I mean, I really want it, but it's kind of a lot. I think we're starting to get some of the newer antibiotics that were more expensive in the early 1980s. And we're starting to see statins become more common. We're starting to get some of these more expensive ulcer drugs. Particularly for older people, drug costs were starting to be a big concern. And guess who hated the idea of Medicare helping older people with that concern? The drug industry. I mean, which sounds bananas, like, hey, the government's going to help people pay for our super expensive product. Boo! Yeah, well. This is my favorite quote ever written about the drug industry and its involvement uh, in, in Medicare. And it's from The New Republic in 1989, uh, written by a guy named Philip Longman. And he said that the drug industry opposed the prescription drug provision, quote, out of the reasonable fear that if the government were paying for all these drugs, it might want to have some say over how much they cost. The drug industry had lobbied hard against the bill, but it passed anyway, got signed. So then... They fed a sneaky campaign to turn people against it. You know, this was there was no Internet yet, but you'd be surprised at the misinformation that got out about this. And there was a kernel of truth. These new benefits were going to be paid for by taxing seniors directly for the first time. Regular Medicare gets funded by payroll taxes on workers. It was like eight hundred dollars a year and only for wealthier seniors. But these groups were saying you're going to have to pay thousands of dollars and 
lower income seniors were going to have to pay thousands of dollars, none of which was true. I mean, there was just an enormous amount of bad information. And as it turns out, some of this had been planted by the prescription drug industry, which didn't like the part of the bill that was going to to start a drug benefit. And this worked like in 1989, people started showing up to confront their members of Congress pissed. There was a very famous demonstration in Chicago. Dan Rostenkowski, the oh, I the remember that. then chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, there, were, there were seniors who draped themselves across the front of his car. Seniors chased Rostenkowski onto Milwaukee Avenue and surrounded his car. One woman stood in front of it, refusing to move as the car inched towards her. I was a kid. I remember the headlines. Rostenkowski was a giant political figure in Chicago. Him getting stopped and trapped by a bunch of pissed off old people was huge front page news. He's supposed to represent the people, not himself. I mean, I had no idea what it was about at the time, but members of Congress did. They repealed the whole thing by the end of the year. And I asked Julie, if the drug industry didn't want Medicare to pay for drugs, well, why didn't they just focus on lobbying and stirring people up to, you know, just repeal the drug part? Because that was really popular. I mean, people wanted the drug coverage. It was easier to undo the rest of the bill that was being paid for by these extra taxes. And Julie says those extra taxes were unpopular, even if a lot of people got the facts wrong. There was a precedent being set. Medicare services being paid for by old people. Maybe eventually more old people would be on the hook for more. There were a variety of things that got this repeal. You cannot say it was all the drug industry, but you can definitely say that the drug industry had a hand in it. It was a long time before Congress made changes like that. In the 1990s, Bill and Hillary Clinton invested all their political capital in an effort to fix more than just Medicare, and they got flattened. And then in 2003, Republicans had control of the White House and both houses of Congress, and they decided to do something they knew people would thank them for, add a drug benefit to Medicare. However... It happened in negotiation with the drug industry, because one of the things that they had discovered that the Democrats had discovered in 1993 and 1994 is that if the drug industry is not in the tent, they're going to blow up whatever you're trying to do. So the government wouldn't be able to negotiate prices for the drugs it was going to be paying for. And there were other compromises, too, especially the benefit was going to be limited. It had actual gaps in it built in, like there's a thing people call the donut hole to this day until this new law kicks in, where once your drugs cost a certain amount, you have to pay thousands of dollars completely on your own before Medicare comes back and picks up anything for your medicine. It's like, yeah, we have this Medicare drug coverage, but it doesn't work all that well for a lot of people. It was designed as a political compromise, not as a workable plan. And it was specifically a political compromise with the drug industry and its lobbying arm, which is called pharma, which, after the bill passed, executed an impressive flex. Fun fact, the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Billy Tozan, went on the following year to resign from Congress and become the head of pharma. Yeah, what? This is the dude who wrote the Medicare drug bill, which starts to answer the question, if this was so messed up for so many people, why did it take 19 years to fix? And about the compromises with industry, there was also a big compromise with the insurance industry. The drug benefit, Medicare Part D, is structured as private insurance. You pay for it out of your pocket. And all of these compromises add complexity for all of us. And it gets really confusing before my mom died. She had basically four different insurance policies because she had regular Medicare, Medicare Part A and Part B are slightly different. She had 
a Medicare supplement, so it would cover most of her out-of-pocket costs and provide her an out-of-pocket cap. She had to buy extra insurance to do that. Then she had a separate Part D drug plan with its own deductible and its own coverage. There are more head-spinning details. I will spare you those. I tell Julie, she's reminding me of a big reason we haven't looked at Medicare yet on this show, because it is so complicated. It's just a mess to try to understand. It does not end up with a, a streamlined program that's easy for its end users. We'll be coming back to Medicare. But this is why Stacey Dusitsinez had to work so hard to wrap her mind around how Medicare works or doesn't for regular people and how to find the data that demonstrates it. And meanwhile, Julie's been watching the action and inaction on Medicare drug coverage in Washington. There were patches, the sorts of things people like Stacy find the big gaping holes in, but nothing, well, you know, nothing the drug industry actively opposed. Until now. Just barely. This was not an easy bill to get through. I mean, it, this was definitely hand-to-hand combat. And Julie says the drug industry lost a round. That doesn't mean they're done fighting. It is a long game. Yeah. <laughs> I plan to watch it for a long time. Back to this round and what it means. Of course, it wrapped up with Stacey Dusitsina alone in her office watching C-SPAN and crying. I mean, she was alone, but not completely alone. You have your different chat groups, like your academic friends chat group, who really has been in it with you for the ups and downs. Right. Stacy's not the only person whose work helped make this happen. She's got a lot of colleagues and collaborators. We're like texting with each other. And, you know, we've had these same support groups for years as we've felt like it was really close to happening. And then like it didn't. And there was also crying, but different crying. She'll see some of those collaborators later this month at a big ceremony celebrating the bill's passage at the White House. I got to save the date from the president. (laughs) You know, that's that's pretty cool. I was like, I definitely feel like I've peaked. She figures there will still be lots of messed up things to investigate for the rest of her career. But seeing this change also makes her feel good about her role running Vanderbilt's Ph.D. program in health policy. I bring people into the field and To be able to say, like, sometimes it actually does change. And I've always said, you know, like, policy is a long game. Like, your job is to generate evidence. Like, keep on generating evidence. And you will often feel like it's going nowhere because it's not the right political moment. But I think to be able to show students that you can still make a difference, even if it takes 40 or 50 years. (laughs) I absolutely do not want to wait 40 or 50 years. I don't think any of us does. And for some people, even waiting two or three years for this new law to fully kick in, it's too long. On Twitter, one woman responded to Stacy's thread celebrating the new law, writing, sad I won't make it that long and that my man will have to work while I die so I can have his insurance. She's got breast cancer. But she agreed this will help a lot of people once it's in place. She wrote, I'm working for those that come behind me. So, yeah, I'm so glad Stacey Jusitsina and her colleagues have hung in there, that they continue to generate evidence. Because this is a pretty big freaking deal. And I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have happened without them. Next time on An Arm and a Leg, we'll talk about one thing that didn't make it into this bill the way some people had hoped. Here's a clip from a rally in late July. We need action on insulin now. Our fight literally means life or death. The Inflation Reduction Act does help some people who need insulin. 
For people on Medicare, it's going to limit copays to $35 per month. But there was also an effort to extend that copay cap to people with regular insurance. And that failed. But producer Emily P. Secreta, who lives with type 1 diabetes herself, is going to bring us a story that may provide some reason for optimism. States like California say they are taking matters into their own hands. Here's California Governor Gavin Newsom. It's happening. California is going to make its own insulin. For real? Emily's got the story in three weeks. Till then, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, with help from Emily Pizzacreta and edited by Afi Yellow Duke. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raimunda is our audio wizard. Our music is by Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for audience. B. Bosco is our consulting director of operations. Sarah Balama is our operations manager. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. It's an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. KHN is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit they share an ancestor, the 20th century industrialist Henry J. Kaiser. When he died more than 50 years ago, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandlegshow.com slash Kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast at Kaiser Health News. She is editorial liaison to this show. KHN also brings you Julie Robner's podcast, What the Health, where Julie sorts through the latest on health policy and politics from Washington, D.C., along with other super smart reporters and other guests. Thank you to Public Narrative. That's a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. And those donations support this show. If you're not a donor, we would love to have you. Come on by to www.armandthelegshow.com support. Thank you. Thank you.